Well, good morning, church. I am grateful to be with you this morning as we continue in the second week of a new series that we began last week called Warning and Hope. Warning and Hope. And it's a study in the theme of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And maybe that's a phrase you've never heard before. Maybe that's one that you're very familiar with this morning. But the day of the Lord is a theme throughout the scriptures that alludes to a day when the Lord will act in history. In fact, Bradley gave us a really specific definition. I'd love to start with this definition this morning just to begin to frame our understanding of where we are headed this morning in the book of Amos. And so the definition of the day of the Lord is a time when the Lord God directly and decisively acts in human history to accomplish his will and reveal his glory. The day of the Lord serves in scripture as both a day of judgment on the sins of God's people and on his enemies, as well as a call to repentance, a call to salvation for anyone who would return to the Lord. And so we've named this series Warning and Hope because God in his infinite mercy to us warns us in the day when we are wandering and warned his people in the day when they were wandering so that they might turn and find hope, find hope in what he is offering them in his grace and mercy. So we're going to dive a little bit more into the day of the Lord this morning, and we're going to go from one minor prophet, the prophet Joel, who we were with last week, to another minor prophet this morning. And if you weren't here, Bradley gave us a great frame of reference for the minor prophets. He said that reading the minor prophets is like reading our vegetables, okay? And so we're going to read some more vegetables this morning. So hopefully you came a little bit hungry, but we are going to be in the book of Amos chapter 5. So I'd encourage you to grab your Bibles. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you, and the page number will be on the screen for those. And I'm going to ask you to stand. It is our tradition here at Shades now to stand at the reading of the word of the Lord. We believe that as the grass withers and the flower fades, God's word abides forever. That it is like a mirror that when we look into it and we see who God has shown himself to be, and we get a picture of who we are and how we might relate to him. And so when we go to the word of the Lord, we see what is right and good and true that God has said that we need to hear. And so beginning in Amos 5, we're going to begin in verse 18 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice Roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let's pray this morning, church. Father God, we come before you this morning in your word to hear something from you, because we know that if your word abides forever, it is also alive, and in its life, it can speak truth into our hearts and transform us and change us. So God, that's what we ask that you would do this morning. Father, we ask that you would move and work among us, that you would take away any obstacle that would keep us from hearing you. Father, open our ears that we might be changed as we walk from this place into the world with the good news of the message of Jesus Christ as our hope. We pray this in your name. Amen. Y'all can be seated this morning. 
You know, a little over three weeks ago, I'm a huge sports fan, and a little over three weeks ago, one of my favorite sporting events of the year took place, the NBA Finals. I love basketball. It's not because I'm good at basketball. I just like watching people who are really good at basketball. And the thing about basketball is that these, uh, these players that are on these teams that make it to the championship, usually there are just some star-studded players, some incredible players. They go head-to-head. If you're not caught up on what happened, the Boston Celtics played the Golden State Warriors. The Boston Celtics are a storied franchise in NBA history. And the Golden State Warriors are this up-and-coming dynasty. And it was a great clash. The Warriors won. Sorry if I ruined it for you. Uh, But as I was following the stats and the storylines all about the finals, which I love to do, I came across a very interesting article. In fact, it was an article by the Washington Post, which doesn't usually write about basketball. And the article was called, Clay Thompson Lookalike Banned After Fooling Security at Warriors Arena. Now, this article details the story of a young man named Dawson Gurley, who is a YouTube influencer. And Dawson Gurley is known across the internet as fake Clay, okay? And if you don't know who Clay is, Clay Thompson is one of the star forwards on the Warriors. I've got a picture of fake Clay and real Clay, okay? On your left-hand side, that's real Clay Thompson. On your right-hand side, that is fake Clay Thompson. Listen to the excerpt from this article I'm gonna read you this morning. It says, Dawson Gurley, who's achieved internet fame as fake Clay Thompson, reprised his years-long promise on Monday afternoon to infiltrate multiple layers of security at Chase Arena and hoop it up on the Warriors' home floor for 10 minutes. This is real. This happened. Security then uncovered Gurley and kicked him out of the arena. The apparently successful stunt constitutes a major security breach in one of the most successful sports franchises in recent years, one that boasts some of the brightest stars in the sports world, including Thompson and Stephen Curry. This article literally goes on to explain how fake Clay, dressed up like Clay Thompson, walked up to the Chase Center, which is the arena where the Warriors play. They are in the championship, and he just walks right on through security. He's like, hey, they're like, hey, Clay. He walks through security. He walks through the locker room. Maybe he even comes in contact with some players. He goes out onto the home floor in pregame, and he's shooting the ball, and nobody says anything to him. Nobody says anything to him. I mean, the absurdity of this is absolutely incredible. It's it's amazing to me that someone could so convincingly pretend to be something that they're not. I mean, the, the story about fake clay seems like a prank that maybe went too far or just a YouTube guy who's trying to get more followers on his channel, but it just makes me wonder about those employees, okay? And maybe if they're your employees, you're wondering about their future right now as well, okay? You're thinking, how? How in the world could they have not recognized that this was not actually Clay Thompson? I mean, the security guards, the team management personnel, the people setting up his his little locker space, how could they have not known that this was him? How could they not tell the difference between an imposter and the real thing? You know, in fairness to these workers, I think it can be really hard sometimes to differentiate between the counterfeit and the real thing. In fact, I think we become so familiar kind of with the rhythms of our lives, the ins and outs, the things we see on a daily basis, that we often kind of shift down into this cruise control in our life. We don't always know that we've done it, but sometimes we land in this space where we're just going through the motions. We're doing the things that we've always done, and we convince ourselves that everything's fine, when in fact we've really just been coasting through life, unaware 
that the things that were once really important to us maybe have kind of taken a back seat. Or even worse than that, the things that really once mattered to us don't matter at all anymore. This is the exact moment we find the prophet Amos speaking into the religious life of the Israelites in our passage. In the case of the northern kingdom of Israel in Amos 5, they had impersonated holiness for so long that they had even deceived themselves into believing that they were right with God. They thought that they could have their life over here where they worshiped a few other gods and they did what they wanted to do. And just so long as they paid their religious dues over here, they did what they were supposed to do in God's eyes, that they were gonna be okay. They had built this facade of faithfulness for themselves and it had gotten to the point where they actually desired, they wanted, they looked forward to the day of the Lord. They were looking forward to the day of the Lord, but God's people weren't actually walking with him at all. They had only built a false reality for themselves, and they went through the motions of religion wearing masks that made them look like followers of God when they were actually just impersonators. God could see right through their masks. He can see right through our masks as well. In fact, God can see to the heart of who we really are, and we can't fool him. And in his proclamation of judgment on the people of Israel in Amos 5, God makes an announcement. He makes an announcement to all who would call themselves religious and what the day of the Lord means for those who would stand before him with religious camouflage. For us today, there are two really distinct warnings, two hard warnings for us that if we would stand before the Lord because of our religion or in, in, the, in the facade of our religion, what the day of the Lord will really bring about for us. The first warning that we see is this, that religious identity does not make us right with God. Religious identity does not make us right with God. And Amos begins his passage with this, with this wail, with this burst of emotional anguish. He says, woe to you. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. It was a phrase that was often used at the funeral of someone who had died. A wail that pronounced over the Israelites, it served as this prophetic judgment for the gloom, the darkness that actually awaited them on the day of the Lord. And we have to ask, why? Why did God's people get to this point? How did they not realize that they were not walking with God all of this time? Well, it's important for us to understand the context of what's happening in the book of Amos. The northern kingdom was actually experiencing one of the most prosperous moments in its history. And Israel genuinely believed, as they had for generations, that when prosperity came, it was God's blessing on them, that God was the one who was giving it. As they grew in wealth and in power, the religious elite of the day began to believe that their religious to-do list, their religious observance, was the reason that God was still blessing them, that, that what they were doing was enough, that it was working, that it was getting them greater blessing. What began as gratefulness for God's blessing became greed. And God's people just wanted more and more and more and more. And seeing the day of the Lord off on the horizon, they said, man, if God's blessing us this much right now, how great will the day of the Lord be? How great will that awesome blessing be that we will receive on the day of the Lord? And so they wanted it. They desired its arrival. But all the while, they were ignoring the poor. They were ignoring those who had need. And they were pushing them further, further down into their poverty to make more and more and more 
of their wealth, and they swelled with false, with false confidence about the day of the Lord. Where was this confidence coming from? Well, their false confidence really stemmed from this false religious identity that they had given themselves. You see, they believed if they were God's chosen people and, and things were going well, then God wouldn't judge them. Not like he would the pagan nations, not like he would those who were walking far away from him. If things were going well, then what did they have to worry about? They weren't worried about God's judgment. Their confidence stemmed from this false religious identity. But Amos calls out these false beliefs in verse 19, and he uses this prophetic imagery to help us understand what kind of position the Israelites found themselves in. He describes two men. One who, having escaped the danger of a lion, runs away, feeling as though he's been freed, and then turns the corner and comes face to face with the ferocity of a bear. Then he describes another man who walks into a house, the safety, the security of his own home, only to be bitten on the hand by a snake that is lingering in the shadows. You see, Amos knew the Israelites believed that they had escaped the judgment of God, that they would be safe in this home of false security they had erected in their own minds, but they had not escaped judgment in the least. For God does not judge us, church, based upon the religious identities we keep, but on the desires of our heart and our faithfulness to him. He does not judge us based upon the religious identities we keep for ourselves, but on our faithfulness. And make no mistake, God does hold his people accountable. He will hold his people accountable. You know, this idea of religious self-identity as a means to prosperity or as a means even to salvation, it's still pretty, pretty prevalent around us today. It hasn't gone away since this time with Israel. In fact, this area, the region where we live in the south, is very common. It's very prominent all around us. You see, there are many in the region where we live who believe that they've gone to church all their lives and if they just keep going to church, if they just keep associating themselves with God, they have fire insurance. They have what they need to escape the judgment of God. They associate their wealth and their personal, uh, personal wealth and the things that they've accumulated for themselves as God's blessing. They're, God, God's not mad at me. Look at all this stuff I have. Look how comfortable I am. It kind of has this name that we don't like to toss around. It's like a hot potato that we kind of throw around when it makes us look a little bit more religious. It's this title of cultural Christian. Cultural Christian. It's this belief that religion is just one of the ingredients in this recipe of moral living that we are cooking up for ourselves, that we might be a good person. But like the Israelites in so many ways, those who carry this label associate with the church They might even call themselves Christians by title, but they're building their own kingdom. They're doing what they want to do, and they're checking the religious box that they know they're supposed to check. It's not about a relationship with God at all. It's about getting what God could give them. It's about getting from God, not meeting or walking with the living God. And as their circumstances stay the same, They go through the religious motions, they do what they always do, and they don't see any conflict between the religious and the private life. Man, this is is one of the enemy's favorite tactics to use against us, to lure us into a state of apathy with the temptation of religion. 
Satan wants to convince us that our circumstances and our comforts, our wealth and our success, they're actually God's way of approving us, telling us that it's okay. By reassuring us that we're walking with God, the enemy persuades us that if we're religious, we're on the right track. And he hypnotizes us into this spiritual sleepwalk. And we find ourselves wandering. Although we carry the label of a Christ follower, when we look at our habits, when we look at our values, our priorities, our personal lives don't actually align with the heart of God at all. And we're sleepwalking. But Amos makes it really clear. There's no religious title, no label that we can place on our lives that will pave the way to redemption with the living God. The scriptures actually tell us what our identity is. They make it really, really clear that we're sinners in need of a savior, that we are lost and hopelessly desperate for someone to rescue us. In our best moments, we are not able to stand in front of the holiness of the greatness of our God and that we need someone to come after us. And there's no true, there's no religious identity we can put on ourselves that God will look at and excuse our behavior, that God will look away from us because of it. No matter what type of false religious identity we have convinced ourselves of, Amos warns us, along with Israel, that God can see straight to the heart of who we really are. He sees our heart clearly. And whatever private exceptions we may have made for a life that is dishonoring to him are not actually hidden from his view at all. We may, been, we may have fooled the people around us. We may have fooled ourselves, but we will not fool God. He sees your heart this morning, church. He sees your heart and he knows you. What identity will the day of the Lord reveal in your heart? What identity will it show in you? The label of religious will not be enough on the day of the Lord. We have to receive a new identity. This is what the apostle tells us. The apostle Paul tells us, he says that when we accept Christ, when we ask Christ to come in to save us by his grace, he gives us a new identity. The old self has died and a new self must come. No religious identity we put on ourselves will make us right with God. We must wake up from our religious slumber and receive a new identity that Jesus has secured in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. We know that religious identity does not make us right with God, but we see another warning from Amos here. That's that our religious know-how cannot make us right with God. Amos moves directly from this false identity that kind of fuels the Israelites' misunderstanding of the day of the Lord to the religious rituals, the practices they would use to justify that identity. Here, Amos goes over the full scope of religious worship. He tells us all of the different ways that the Israelites were still being faithful to God, but what it actually resulted in. He begins in verse 21, describing the way that God responds to these sacrifices by using words like hate, despise, take no delight in. These were the opposite of the intended outcomes of these practices of worship. The feasts were meant to be celebrations of God's faithfulness, moments to remember how good he has been and express our love for his goodness and his faithfulness. But God says, no, I hate, I hate your feasts. 
We don't see love coming from God. And the assemblies of God were meant to be communal expressions of worship intended to bring delight to the face of God. But God said to those who impersonated devotion, he took no delight in their assembly. He goes on, he says, God would not accept the offerings of people seeking forgiveness through ritual sacrifice. He would not look upon the peace offerings. He would not hear their songs. He would not listen to their music. Why? This is what God said to do. Why won't God listen? Why is God turning aside his face from his people? It's because the religious deeds described in this passage were offered by a people with religious know-how, but with no devotion, with no actual love for God himself. We see very clearly that God cares so much more about the motivation of our hearts than the things we can do for him. To be counterfeit towards God and religious practice, it not only takes the glory away from God, but it actually puts it on ourselves. It makes worship about us. Motivation matters. And some of you, may, maybe you're thinking, man, why does God have to get like all through the lines and like pick at it? Like, why can't he just accept it? They're doing what he asked them to do. Why can't God just accept it? But I think you believe that motivation matters too, right? I remember the first time I watched Frozen, that's where I'm going now, okay? Hang with me. The first time I watched Frozen with my three-year-old and my four-year-old, okay? If you haven't seen Frozen, I'm about to ruin it for you. And if you have not seen Frozen, man. Uh, so Frozen, the storyline of Frozen, there's two princesses, okay? Princess Elsa, Princess Anna, and Elsa is being elevated to the queenship. And so they throw this big coronation party and they invite all of these delegates from other kingdoms. And among the delegates is a man named Hans. Han, Prince Hans of the Southern Isles. The fact that I know that's his title just is embarrassing, but I do. All right, Prince Hans of the Southern Isles. And Prince Hans comes in, and man, he is like Prince Charming. He sweeps Anna off of her feet. I mean, they are falling in love in the first moments that they're together. When Elsa gets into trouble and she runs away from the castle, he's the first one to say, man, I'm going to go after her. I'm going to save her. I'm going to show how great and glorious I am. And you watch this movie, and you're like, man, Hans is so great. And then you get to this part, and they're, they're, this scene, they're sitting on the floor, and Anna is hurt, and she's, she's dying, and he has this opportunity to save her. And then you just see his face do this thing. You know what I'm talking about, where he's like, and you're like, I'm sorry, what? And my kids next to me are like, what? He's the worst, right? They're just like, they're like smacking dad. They're like, he's so mean, he's awful, why? Because all this time, he's using a false motivation. All this time, he's just trying to get something from these people. He's just trying to use Anna, use Elsa to rise to the throne and take it away from them. And the Israelites, man, they were using God as a means to their own end. They weren't actually there to worship God at all. They wanted to establish their own glory. They wanted to become richer. They wanted to build lives of luxury for themselves. So they showed up at temple, well-dressed, cleaned up, singing their songs of worship, making their sacrifices, pretending like everything was just fine. But they weren't there to make much of the living God at all. They wanted to use God as a means to their own end. And you know, this is one of the main objections of secular culture towards, towards the church today. The culture sees religious people of power, religious people who have influence, and they see those religious people use God as justification to assert their control 
over others. And they go, why would you want to be a part of that? But we don't just see this in the public eye, Christians who are, you know, celebrities, but it actually happens everywhere. It happens in the church. It, it can happen in a Bible study. It happens in politics. We've seen it happen in denominations. Anytime someone seeks to use religion to maximize their control over others with no accountability before God is using God to their own end. This is what Israel wanted to do. They wanted to justify their growth in wealth, justify their oppression of the poor and their promotion of their own prosperity. But the truth is that religious know-how, as it takes root in our heart, can actually do something deeper in each of us individually. It makes us prideful in worship. It makes us prideful in worship. It makes us come in trying to show that we're religiously competent that we're actually here to show that we are as religious as some might think we are, that, that we are as close to God as some might think that we are. It actually makes worship about us. And instead of coming in this place to lift the name of God, we have the wrong motivation. Instead of confessing our sins to one another and our needs, instead of coming to the altar and telling God that we desperately, desperately need him, we come in and we act like we're all put together. We act like everything is fine and everything is good and everything is right. All the while, religious know-how is fueling us to show that we're religiously competent. But I think Jesus said something totally different about what worship, what walking in relationship with God looks like. It's not about maintaining face. It's not about looking like we are put together. Jesus said, I'm a physician. I didn't come for those who are well. I came for those who are sick, who are in need of healing. God tells us clearly that any kind of worship couched in self-righteousness or self-promotion is not acceptable in his eyes. Only those who come broken, willing to admit their needs, willing to show their hearts, willing to ask for help, willing to confess a struggle or a sin that they just cannot get freedom from only those does God miraculously and sovereignly work in their lives to bring about transformation that lasts. God cares more about our motivation and worship than anything else. What's yours? What's your motivation in worship this morning? Are you here to make much of the living God because of what he has done for you or are you wearing a mask, hiding who you really are so that you might show your religious competence. Repent of your religious know-how this morning, church. You don't have to carry that stuff on your own. That's not what it's meant to be. To walk in the darkness and to hide, that's not what the, this place is meant to be. We're meant to carry that burden together. Lay aside your religious rules and give yourselves to Jesus, his desires to free you from the tyranny of religious hypocrisy and bring you into the freedom of grace and forgiveness. So we know a religious identity will never save us. Religious know-how can never save us. What kind of religion does God accept? This we see in verse 24. Look at it with me. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
using the imagery of floodwaters. I'm thinking about that storm last night, right? Watching that water rush down my street. Using the imagery of floodwaters flowing after a torrential rain, Amos describes a life that is pleasing to God as a life that is overflowing with justice and righteousness. And first he tells us that justice is at the center of a religion that is acceptable to God. And the justice here relates directly to what we've referred to in this message this morning, that the Israelites were not walking in justice, that they were ignoring the needs of the people around them. They were ignoring those who were poor, who were marginalized. But in verse 24, Amos tells us that the heart that is aligned with God's heart seeks justice to be done. It's like a river that's overflowing its banks with waves after a heavy rain. The life pleasing to God is overflowing with compassion for those who have needs, soaking all of the barren spots that have gone unwatered. A life aligned with God's heart is motivated to intentionally reach into spaces where the marginalized and the oppressed are and to meet their needs, to help them find care and to help them find hope in the person of Jesus. We see this all through the Bible, to care for orphans and widows in their distress, to care for the needy around us, to give them the clothes off of our back, Jesus told us. A life motivated by justice is pleasing to the Lord. Does that sound like your life? But then Amos moves from justice to righteousness, and righteousness is not the tally of how many good deeds you've done, but it's the measure of the desire in your heart for what is right in God's eyes to be acknowledged and to be brought to reality in the world and in the church. The righteous life lays aside preferences and power and comfort to see what is right in God's eyes come to fruition. And Amos tells us that like a stream that never runs dry, the righteous life flows endlessly to proclaim the goodness of God and the goodness of his design for the world to every person it can. Is your life that life, a life of righteousness? How does your religion stack up this morning? The day of the Lord will be a day when God directly and decisively acts in human history to accomplish his will and reveal his glory. And in the case of the Israelites, that day came when the Assyrians came and they took over the city. And the Israelites went into exile because they were not righteous. They were not just. And when I think about the day of the Lord and I see what God requires, I'm terrified for myself. And not the kind of fear that draws us to God, but the kind of fear that makes me want to hide. You see, I know that in my best moments, I'm not seeking the plight of the oppressed around me or trying to reach out to the marginalized in my community because I'm just too busy. I'm too busy with my own priorities and my own schedule and the things I need to do. And on the day of the Lord, I will not be worthy. I recognize that beneath the best moments in my life of seeking to do what is right and good and true, that beneath those are these motivations for me to be seen, to be recognized as holy. And I know on the day of the Lord, I will not be worthy. I'm constantly trying to pull back and forth between this battle of being a professional Christian, trying to be what God has called me to be while feeling this pressure of being something else, someone who needs recognition and someone who needs attention. And, and I'm singing the songs I'm supposed to sing and I'm teaching the things I'm supposed to teach and I'm, I'm doing the things I'm supposed to do, but all the while I know 
that sometimes I'm just in this religious sleepwalk. I'm just going through the motions. And on the day of the Lord, I will not be worthy. And the scripture tells us this is true in every one of our hearts. In fact, it describes us like this. None of us are righteous, not even one. Our righteousness is like a filthy rag before the Lord God. We have nothing to bring to the table in all of our religious effort that will ever help us to be made right before God. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have sinned dead in our trespasses and sins, fools thinking that we are wise, helpless, lost, unworthy in every way. What is our hope? What is our hope on the day of the Lord? Or perhaps a better question, who is worthy? Who is worthy? Friends, Jesus Christ is worthy. He championed justice and righteousness every day, every hour, every moment of his life. In the places where we have mistaken prosperity for blessing, Jesus embraced suffering. He embraced servanthood that we might know what it is like to be blessed by the riches of his grace. He is worthy. In the places where we've mistaken religion for righteousness and we've, we've bought into this lie that Satan wants us to buy into, that Jesus willingly embraced the wrath of God that he might actually give us his righteousness so that we might stand before the Lord. He is worthy. In the places where we've mistaken pity for justice and we've ignored the, the plight of the needy all around us, Jesus actually became spiritually poor on the cross that we would be adopted into an eternal family and heirs, sons and daughters of a high, high king who is rich beyond all measure. He is worthy. And Jesus has done for us what we can never do for ourselves by going to the cross. The wrath of God poured out on him because of your sin and by raising from the dead, Jesus has freed us he has freed you from the chains of religious living. And on the, this is where it gets good. And on the day of the Lord, on the day of the Lord, when all is revealed and judgment comes, all of those who have called on the name of the Lord will be saved because he has proclaimed that we are worthy not because of our religion, not because of who we think we might be, but because of grace that is free and received through faith. He's done all this that we might be justified before God, that we might actually become who we could never be, people of justice, people of righteousness in the world, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, that we would be sacrificed as holy and pleasing to God as a spiritual act of worship, that we would anticipate with excitement and eagerness the day of the Lord to come, the day when we will all who trust in the name of Jesus be under one banner, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one identity, one motivation to lift the name of Jesus high in all the world that as many as possible would be saved. You know, I said at the beginning, I love sports. One sport I love, or really one season of sports I love are the Olympics. What I love about the Olympics is I can't really tell you that many Olympic athletes. We've got a few that kind of stand out, but there aren't that many. 
that we can name. We can't go through a list and name every single one from the last Olympics. But what's astounding to me about the Olympics and my favorite moment about it is when one of those American athletes is standing up on that podium and they put the gold medal around their neck and a song begins to play. You know the song, right? Our national anthem begins to play. And as the national anthem plays and you see them standing there being recognized for the work that they have put in, something rises behind them. It's our flag, the symbol, the symbol to whom they belong, the ones they represent. And in some way, I'm sitting on that couch and I'm like, I want a gold medal because I'm a part of something that is bigger, that that there's this thing that unifies us. There's a banner over them. On the day of the Lord, when you stand in the judgment of God, what banner will raise behind you? What will your banner be? For if the banner that raises behind you is Jesus Christ, then on the day of the Lord, you will be saved. You will be invited in to his presence forever. So I'm gonna ask you to do something this morning. We're gonna respond. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. It's not because it's some fancy spiritual thing that we do, but it just allows us to focus, to focus on our hearts and to focus on what the Lord has said to us. Maybe you're here this morning and all of your life you have walked through the religious motions. You've built for yourself a religious identity. You've given yourself a label, but the reality is your life looks different. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been sleeping, you've been sleepwalking for so long that your motivations have shifted and changed. Repent before the Lord for it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. Receive the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and and you are walking with Jesus. You're walking in holiness and you're you're spending time with him. You have a relationship with him, but, but you don't have a life that's characterized by the justice and the righteousness that we have heard. Ask the Lord to show you where he is calling you into a life of justice a life that seeks the needs of the oppressed and the marginalized. Ask him to give you courage to be the righteousness in every place you walk into that people might see what he says is good. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. The scriptures tell us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Every one of us will stand before God on that day. But if you belong to Jesus, then you will be welcomed in as a son and a daughter. I plead with you, if you have not trusted in Jesus, place your faith in him this morning. In a minute, we're going to go into a time of worship. And I'm just going to encourage you to do what you need to do to respond to what the Lord is speaking to you. Maybe that looks like coming and kneeling before the altar up here and confessing that you've been walking in a religious sleepwalk and that you want to wake up and come, lay at the altar. Maybe for you that looks like sitting in your chair and praying before you stand to worship, writing something on a note or something in your Bible, whatever that looks like for you this morning. I'm gonna ask that you would respond. Let's pray together. Father God, we recognize that we have this tendency in us to become like zombies, really, 
doing the things we've always done because we've always done them in the mundane and the continuation of our lives and the ins and outs of what we do and not even noticing when we drift, when we float away. But God, we also recognize that your kindness leads us to repentance and in a hard message, a message that your people did not heed in the book of Amos, but that we want to heed, God, your message is a message of grace because of Jesus and mercy for us. And so God, I pray that you would give us a clear path of response. Let us not leave this place. Walk away and forget what you have said. For as the grass withers and the flower fades, your word abides forever. May it abide in our hearts this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.